0: Hello and welcome to Humanitarian AI Today. Humanitarian AI Today is a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian HumanitarianAIMeetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Toronto, and Zurich. So Humanitarian AI Meetup groups were launched to give AI developers a chance to interface with humanitarian actors and talk about AI from general and technical perspectives, fostering knowledge, sharing, and cross collaboration. I'm Mia Kosiavelu, your host, and today we're going to interview a very special guest from Element AI, Alfredo Kaleidzis. Hi, Um, Mia. Hey. So you're a research engineer in Element AI's AI for Good Lab in London. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. So welcome, and please, we've got lots we can talk about. You've got such an extensive background. Do you want to just start on what you're um, working on right now at Element AI as a research uh, engineer in the AI for Good Lab in London?
1: Yeah, first, uh, Element AI is an artificial intelligence startup uh, based in Montreal uh, with offices in Montreal, Toronto, London, Seoul, and Singapore. And uh, really the business of Element AI is to, to uh, help enterprises operationalize AI, to allow them to work smarter together. And, uh, you know, the the kind of work that we're doing in London, which is the AI for team, is no more different in the sense that uh, we don't work with commercial partners, just in the London office where we're just 13 people. Uh, we work with non-governmental organizations and uh, nonprofits. So, we treat them just the same as clients, but they happen to have slightly different needs.
0: So, so that would be really interesting to compare those or or share what what have you noticed, what's different?
1: Uh, So, the main difference is that, as you can imagine, um, an NGO is a nonprofit company, of course, and uh, they don't generate revenue by selling any product or any service. Uh, They're really relying on donations. And... As you can imagine, uh, that means they have very limited budgets for for their operational needs. That also means they cannot hire technical talent. Um, You know, there's a a lot of talent out there that's coming out on uh, prestigious universities. Uh, But now the market, uh, the salaries are quite demanding to poach uh, this kind of people, and uh, Mm -hmm. NGOs cannot afford that. Right. So, what we bring in into the fray here is as Element AI for Good Team, we, we provide the technical expertise from um, building products, from deploying um, AI services, and we bring those to uh, the humanitarian AI world. And we want to marry that with domain expertise that these NGOs bring. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been working on these problems for like decades. And we want to develop some proof of concept you know to show that we can we can use ai to some extent to solve some of your problems and to show to the rich people you know what this thing works mm-hmm. would you like to to throw money at it to mm-hmm. make the solution sustainable
0: what's the um i don't want to use the word hook but what's what is it that ngos bring in that's unique and you know we will we'll sort of open up those purse strings and um and help them with those donations
1: Well, really the hook is that these are the people who have been, who are out there in the field, who've been interviewing people, taking their testimonies, recording those videos, those bootleg videos. These are the people who know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're really allowed, you know, as techies, they keep us grounded, you know, because tech people that tend to have this hubris where they're saying, uh, "Stay back, world. we're going to solve a problem with algorithms. And it usually (laughs) doesn't work that well. And what NGOs uh, bring to the table is just you know this kind of humility and saying you know uh, this is a really complicated issue.
0: Yeah, there's nothing like the field uh, speaking back to uh, and uh, how it all connects. I mean, how what do they find is helpful? What what are they asking for? Um, and what do they need help with?
1: Well, we really need help with their data. I think the something that they share with any of our for-profit organization is that. Some of the times they're not uh, data ready, what we would say. Uh, mm-hmm. So, data readiness, think of it as a gauge that says, you know, how well organized is your data? Or, you know, whether, have you been, um, have you been uh, maintaining your databases? And if, there, if that base layer doesn't exist, then you can't do analytics. You cannot do statistics or what people call data science these days. You can't do automation. You can't do AI. It's like a pyramid of needs, So NGOs do suffer from that.
0: So I want to back up a little bit to some of the things you've done in the past. Um, There's an interesting point about what you did with a partnership with Amnesty International on the Mm large-scale study of online abuse against women on Twitter from crowdsourced data. Could you please walk us through that entire journey?
1: So um, this is a... You know, the issue of toxicity and abuse on Twitter uh, has been going on for as far as Twitter has been existing or any other major social media platform. Um, In the case of Twitter, Amnesty International has been pushing for change in the policy of Twitter, you know, how they handle their platform, how do they protect their users, especially uh, some of the more vulnerable populations. Uh, women, uh, transgender people, um, you know, people of the LGBTQI community,
0: uh-huh.
1: just to name some examples. And it really, you know, Twitter's stance has been that freedom of speech is paramount. And Amnesty is really good at running campaigns and raising awareness of the issues. So kind of like create this external political pressure towards Twitter to force some change. And it hasn't happened. So what we did, uh, we partnered with Amnesty and we agreed to run this experiment. And the experiment was, let's allow the thousands of uh, supporters um, of Amnesty to volunteer some of their time and annotate examples of tweets that a very special cohort of women politicians and journalists have received, let's say, across uh, 2017. Now, you, as a volunteer, you sign up to this platform. It's called the Decoder's platform. You look at a tweet, and then the platform shows you the tweet. It's completely anonymized. You don't see who wrote it. You only see what it says. It has the mentions. It has the handles. It has very explicit language. And, you know, this is a different topic. You you get exposed to a lot of this uh, abusive language and death threats and uh, rape threats and all that. Uh, wow. It can get quite heavy to a uh, person who sees it. You know? So anyway, you're, you're looking at all this stuff and you're annotating. And the platform asks you, is this abusive or is this problematic or not at all? You don't see anything problematic with it. So think of it as kind of like these three scales uh, on the you know, spectrum of abuse. And we, you know, we collected all this data. We collected all these annotations. Uh, this is basically called crowdsourcing. And it's a very old idea in machine learning. So we collect this crowdsource data, and then we are in a position to answer very specific questions on how much abuse is there in a very specific demographic of women journalists and politicians, either the US or the UK. I'll give you just one example. Let's say we take one demographic of um, black women politicians in the UK, Mm -hmm. right? Um, For the first time ever, now we can answer, well, how much abuse rate have they uh, have they suffered? And uh, really, like one of the most not surprising, but I would say one of the most striking findings of our of our report was that um, overall, uh, black uh, politicians and journalists they endure almost twice the amount of abuse compared to uh, non-black women journalists and the politicians.
0: Wow. Well, that's so so important that you were able to do this. And have you? Has this been used systematically anywhere? What's Amnesty done with it?
1: So the big picture is that even though everyone knows that Twitter can be toxic and abusive, uh, and really it's just like open season out there for anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, No one ever. Everyone knows Twitter is toxic, but no one ever answered how much. And by putting some numbers on the issue, we really gave gave Amnesty International crutch to kind of make, to amplify the report and uh, put some numbers on the issue, which helped uh, them even more in their campaign. Mm -hmm. So just to give you a story here, uh, we released this study, I think, around, it was back in December 8th or 9th, I don't quite remember. And uh, a lot of, you know, hours later, a lot of news outlets picked it up. We're talking about uh, Mm. Financial Times, we're talking about uh, MIT Technology Reports, TechCrunch, Time, uh, even Vogue eventually.
0: Absolutely. It's
1: like, um, I can see, I felt that the story really resonated with a lot of journalists around the world mm-hmm. because, you know, I, they feel this in their everyday life, right, in their work, and it really resonated with them. So we got so much coverage. And what happened later, mm-hmm. I, I did not expect, but um, Twitter stock fell 30 per, 13%, 1-3. No way. Wow,
0: wow, so wow. So there were, there were, there are some
1: intermediate actors that play here. So, there was one investment group called uh, something with the name Citron something, but uh, basically, their managing director said, uh, Twitter is the Harvey Weinstein of social media. Oh, no. And then their shares uh, fell 13%. You no, know, that translates to, to billions of dollars. And uh, this is not something that we set out to do, right? But unfortunately, in this capitalist world, sometimes like, executives only speak the language of money. Uh, so, you know, you can think of it as money being a bi-directional language here, you know, if that's the only way, then they, they will listen, then that's what it takes. But the real impact is this. So the day after the the announcement of the share price drop, um, the, the CEO of Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey reached out to the secretary general of Amnesty International and said, okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about potential solutions. and I mean, that's the real impact here. And it's really about, ultimately, about enabling um, these human rights experts uh, to get their job done, either through AI or good old statistics, data science, call call it whatever you want. Mm
0: -hmm. Brilliant. Well done. So there was response and good, good results. Wonderful. So on that note, maybe you've got such an extensive background. Freddie, and I, I'm i not sure what, what else to pick out of this outside of your element AI, but maybe you can walk us through your own journey and what got you from A to B to C. So we, we talked about Amnesty. We started off with element AI. Uh, is there something else in, in your background that you'd like to share with uh, our humanitarian AI meet-up audience today? I mean,
1: there have been... I've done a lot of different things in my career, all related to machine learning. Uh, I, did, I really started as a software engineer, and uh, you know, I my first internship ever was in Philips Medical Systems. Uh, I think now it's called Philips Healthcare, but I was responsible for for programming testing protocols between sensors and uh, the the monitors, uh, patient monitors. So there was like these kind of TCP/IP protocols that had to be tested between these uh, different components, and uh, it, it was very like tangentially kind of related to for good, right? You know, I knew that ultimately whatever it is that was programming was being used to to take care of someone. And uh, later on, I knew I wanted to do artificial intelligence. I knew nothing about mathematics. I knew nothing about statistics or linear algebra. Eventually, I kind of had to pick it up uh, as I was going. Uh, I did my master's in Edinburgh University. So I was lucky enough to, to get a scholarship for a, for a PhD, and uh, I did mine with Neil Lawrence, who's uh, now uh, a professor. Um, he has the Deep Mind chair in Cambridge University right now, he, he just got announced. Wow. And uh, I worked a lot on something which is called computational biology. Mm-hmm. So this is a field where you're looking into solving, well, computational problems in biology. So for instance, you want to look at data that you extract from certain tissues. You know, there are like ways to measure how much each part of the genome, call it a gene, how much is activating if you give it a certain drug. And that's really important for biologists because they want to know, well, uh, what, is, what part of the genome is responsible for certain kinds of cancer? This is just one example uh, that uh, computational biology is trying to help with. So my research was really applied on that. I did a lot of work in machine learning trying to make sense of, uh, of that kind of data. And again, this is very much resonates with, uh, with me because if I know that whatever it is I develop is ultimately be, being used, call it for good or call it for better, I don't know. Um, then I feel okay, you know. If I know that my work stops at a paper, then I get depressed.
0: So what's Element AI and what made you go there? What was it about Element AI? It was, you know,
1: you might think given everything I said so far, I did go quite a roundabout route and uh, I, after my PhD, I did a postdoc at uh, University College London and I was looking into probabilistic models of analyzing survey data, uh, not necessarily anything having to do with humanitarian AI. And uh, I got a bit set up with academia and I didn't like the way my future looked. So I wanted to have more impact with my work. And I thought the way to do that was by going into industry. And at that time, uh, data science was very sexy. You know, like there were like people saying uh, data scientists are like the sexiest job in, in the world right now. <laughs> I think someone someone from Google said that. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, And I bought that. You know, I thought, okay, let's be the sexiest uh, professional life. And I became a data scientist. And uh, I did some consulting work for Microsoft. I mm-hmm. went into marketing science. Uh, that was interesting for a while. And then I went into a cybersecurity firm and that was uh that was interesting for a while as well but the thing that really bugged me is that it really make a difference in terms of impact i mean it made some impact within the organization and that was very uh temporary but i realized that nothing that i work on will have a long-lasting impact and it really kind of I was in a moment, I was in a period of crisis. I, I thought I wanted to give up machine learning and data science altogether, like completely. I wanted to change
0: my career,
1: like I could do a complete 180. I don't know. Wow. Um, so I quit that, that job and uh, I started job hunting and I took a long break of course. And then I, jo- I saw a job ad by an office from LMNEI that just opened in London. Uh, whose director was at the time Julian Cornavish. This is a guy that came out of um, DeepMind in 2016, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he really thought, like me, like, I mean, his mission was he, the reason why he quit his job in DeepMind and wanted to, to do this, to, to build this team, was for the same reasons. He really thought that we can do a lot better, we can do A for better. And he started building this team and uh, I joined his team. I think I was, the, I was the second research engineer that joined the team. And we were, we were like, I think the team was like five people by that time. And so I joined the team and we, we immediately started working on the Amnesty project that I just described. Mm-hmm. And well, the, the rest is, uh, you know, for the next, for the next six months, uh, you know, the story, but then there was a lot more that came
0: right so so in your words, what is element AI? Can you share
1: Element AI for good or the company in general
0: The general company, and then we can we can get into the AI for good part, so obviously you're in the uh, NGO and nonprofit side, but it's um it's interesting to see the 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 big picture of element AI and then specifically what what it is that you're um The role
1: you're playing? Sure. So, as I said in the beginning, Element AI is is a software company that sells um, AI solutions for businesses. Um, So, they they find, you know, like little low hanging fruits that can help uh, businesses automate uh, some of the more mundane processes. uh, So, it allows them to work smarter. And uh, we try to do the same thing for NGOs. Uh, As I mentioned, one example was Amnesty International in this case, with the Quantification of Abuse. Uh, I'm going to talk about more examples later on if you want.
0: Mm, that'd be great. And uh, So something else that came up with AI for good and, um, and what you're doing at Element AI, there's this term here called super resolution technology. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, that's a different podcast.
0: <laughs> Why is that? Is it, what is it and how is it deployed? Come on, you've got to give us something. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of
1: course. I mean, I I can just talk about this for for, for at least an hour. Oh, but okay. uh, the, the idea is, so actually, so this idea of super resolution is something that's been existing for a while, and uh, it really started from in the satellite imagery. Like, um, go back to 1984. There was the first paper in computer vision and uh, remote sensing where they were looking at a satellite images, and then the question is, well, we can only get so much detail out of this picture. You know, this is back in the day where a lot of computer vision scientists were funded by DARPA, uh, by DOD. And they, they wanted to help uh, the DOD like get the most out of the, the images out of these very expensive satellite images. Uh, so a lot of the work on super resolution was, was funded by that. And especially there was this type of super resolution that said, well, if we can take multiple snapshots of the same area, but in different times and from slightly different positions. So the satellite is kind of flying about, doing an orbit around the Earth maybe once a day. And it's taking a photograph of the same location once a day. But, you know, it's not going to be quite aligned. It's always going to be a little bit different, maybe it's from a slightly different angle. And you can use that. You can use that slight variation. You can take all these low-res satellite images and you can combine them so that it gives you the end result is a as a higher definition higher resolution image or what we say super resolution okay so it's, kind of like, it's about kind of stitching them together just the right way that you in the end you know the end result you mm. get more detail
0: right. out of
1: compared to any other low resolution image alone
0: is it like is it like a 3d kind of it feels very Almost like you're creating an immersive um, image or something or, yeah, no, I, I'm picturing it and that's what comes to my mind. But what... It's
1: like, uh, I guess the, the best analogy for me to go back to any season of CSI or even MacGyver, actually, there was this episode where, you know, there's this uh, hacker sitting in front of the computer showing their, like, captain, like, this is what we got with our satellite imagery and then it's like, enhance, enhance enhance more, you know, and you're getting this infinite zoom precision of, uh, you can find like the, the tattoo on the wrist of, uh, some burglar.
0: Or yeah. It's all about the resolution. Got it. Got it's it. All about resolution. It's just the, the angles you were talking about made me see, you know, more of a 3d image, but it's all about resolution. And can you, can you talk a little bit about, so you start off saying the funding initially came from DARPA, DARPA, uh, and DOD, um, since then? How, how is it deployed? What can you share about that? Is, are there any cases that you can um, talk about?
1: Right. Uh, first of all, let me clarify that back in the day, you know, this kind of technology was initially funded by the army, right? We realized that a lot of the, you know, deep learning renaissance that is happening is allowing us to do similar things, but in a, in a more efficient way. Right now, with uh, the deep learning revolution, uh, computers are really good at, at analyzing images. So this is why, you know, we can detect faces more efficiently. We can, we can say what is what in an image. We can say this is a pedestrian, this is a road, this is a sign, this is an animal. Uh, all these things machines are really good at because they're, we're giving them tools, very subtle cues in an image. As sometimes cues that even humans might miss. But the flip side of that is that computers are now also really good at generating images. Generating images that are n- have never existed before, that don't exist in reality. So we can like generate faces that don't really exist. They're imaginary people. Um, this really connects to super resolution. Because for the first time ever, now we can take, we can show a computer, only one image in low resolution and then ask it what do you think that image looks like in a higher resolution completely imaginary but such that it's consistent with a low resolution now of course that presents a problem here because that might not fly very well with applications like monitoring for abuse human rights uh, abuses around the world, and you know, like war crimes, atrocities, you know, things that uh, forensic analysts rely on. It really doesn't fly well with scientific applications. Let's say that you're interested in, um, you know, um, climate change applications or uh, quantifying the amount of deforestation. You can't rely on this super-resolution where you're taking only one image and then you're super-resolving to something that might not be real. But what we did in our team was the following. We did the original thing that they did back in 1984. We took a bunch of Loris images from a free satellite, and we taught a computer how to stitch them the right way so that the end product is a higher resolution. Actually, we participated in this competition organized Mm -hmm. by the European Space Agency. And there, the, the, the data were coming from this uh, satellite called proba v, v for vegetation. It was a satellite uh, initially designed for um, monitoring the vegetation on the Earth. And uh, so they, they created this data set and they said, you know, everyone can participate in this. You have the data, show us what you, what you can do with, with deep learning. And uh, we basically uh, topped the competition. Uh, we created this. Kind of elegant architecture that works really efficiently and we tied with uh, the best solution so we basically like came up second but just by a by a photo finish margin um, and uh, yeah so we really kind of proved to the world that when it comes to multi-frame super resolution you can do a lot better nowadays with deep learning and no one has ever done that yet with deep
0: learning Wow, the sky's the limit. That's
1: <laughs> the limit. Cool.
0: Um, it's super cool, and it's super um, frightening at the same time. You know, I, I can see my doppelganger on Mars or something. You know, <laughs> that's
1: right. That's right. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, that's a really uh, good point.
0: All right. Um. So. So how do you see the technology actually benefiting human rights? And, and you mentioned climate before, um, environmental monitoring, and looking at deforestation or maybe um, counting fish or other things. Is there anything you can share about? Yeah, how- of
1: course. Uh, so some of the things that we're looking at now, again, with, with Amnesty, is um, so we're looking into the the case of Darfur. Um, so in Darfur, which is in western, western Sudan, uh, the government's been going around and burning villages and, um, in rural areas of Darfur. And uh, it's mainly non-Arab communities. And this has been going on for, for the last uh, 15 years. So this is, this is one of those issues that Amnesty has been um, raising awareness on for the last 15 years. You know, Even George Clooney got involved at some point. And uh, as I said, you know, Amnesty is really good at um, being in the field and gathering testimonies and, and videos and photographs. And, uh, but it's when it comes down to a criminal court case, it really looks like circumstantial evidence. Like, it's not a systematic collection of data that continuously keeps track of. How much distraction happens. So there is like, it's a really tough story to connect the dots in. Now, if you had, let's say, if you had a satellite, if you had continuous stream of satellite data coming from Darfur, and then you had a computer vision model that can automatically detect burned, destroyed villages, um, you know, in different snapshots, then that really tells us. It really tells you how much that is happening day by day or week by week and it also allows the these forensic analysts to to tell a story mm-hmm. you know to kind of connect it with uh with testimonies and other things that uh you know people on the ground have picked up
0: that's really important to yeah cro- cross it over and um stitch it up as you say so what's the problem with it being not being systematic? What, where is that coming from? What are some of those challenges?
1: So the problem with not being systematic is that, well, for one, it will be really hard from, for to do this manually. It will be really expensive, laborious, boring for someone to look at these satellite tiles one by one and decide if they're destroyed or not. First of all, that causes fatigue and then deterioration deterioration of uh, performance. So really the point of AI is automating this task, uh, is just going through it automatically and predicting if there is destruction there or not. And the second is that if you do this manually, then it's impossible to do a complete coverage. Like you have to be selective about the areas. And that only tells parts of the story. So
0: how accurate is AI in in its prediction or its forecast there in going through the the data and and doing that
1: you'd be surprised you'd be surprised if you calibrate your model Uh to be conservative Mm -hmm. in its prediction to say i'm only gonna give you the the cases that i'm sure of then you get a very good precision and when i say precision precision means if you say something is destroyed and then it's actually destroyed.
0: So That is good precision. Mm -hmm. And
1: you'd be surprised. If you calibrate for a conservative model, then uh, you can find very good consistent evidence.
0: That's great to have um, that intel and those testimonies. So what what else have you learned? What lessons have you learned out of Darfur?
1: Well, the problem is with uh, this, this application is that it really relies on uh, high-resolution data. And this is where it connects with our work on multi frame super-resolution, is that for an organization like Amnesty to to run this solution, it would take millions of dollars for one snapshot of Darfur. And uh, really, I mean, it's impossible. You can't afford that. So our idea is, Maybe if we rely on low-resolution data coming from uh, free or at least uh, much orders of magnitude cheaper satellites, then we can leverage that volume of low-resolution imagery to create uh, super-resolved imagery. Um, just to remind you, you know, you get a lot of low-resolution images of the same area. You you push them, pass them through the model, and the model just stitches them together gives you a super result uh, impression now of course that won't fly in a in a court of law you know the the judge and the jury have no idea what deep learning is or how this technology it, it's all just a black box to them mm-hmm. so but what that allows you to do is really kind of focus on areas that the model prioritizes and then you can you know, say okay well if this is likely to be a hot area then I'm going to order the actual high risk image from the satellite. So in the end, it makes it allows you to make uh, best use of your budget.
0: Right. So so you go in and and it's more targeted. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not sure if we've covered this, but we have a little bit. I, I'm curious to hear more about the environmental side. Um, how how do you see the technology benefiting? Environmental monitoring. Um, can you speak to the human rights, the benefits there of outside of um, Darfur? Maybe, maybe what's going on in Syria and other potential uses? Is that do, you about, do you want to
1: talk about? you want to talk about about uh, environmental applications or more human rights applications? I could talk a little but, bit about environment.
0: Both, both. Sure. Uh, Maybe one um, more example of human rights, and and then something about environmental.
1: Um, maybe both actually there is a there's a a good intersection there
0: mm-hmm.
1: but in the case of Amazon, uh, you know there is a a lot of deforestation happening now driven by the palm oil industry and the uh cattle uh industry yes and you know you need to replace you know if they want the space for creating these cattle ranches and uh farms. They, they need to burn the forest yeah. and uh but it's not the only the forest that's been displaced; it's also the indigenous populations so now you have a case uh which is both environmental and a human rights case and uh you know as you can imagine a lot of groups are interested in that right now like amnesty uh and human rights watch and uh greenpeace in fact
0: mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant example um absolutely wow uh-huh and well What's going on then from um, your watch and and what you're doing? It's not just
1: NGOs that are interested in that. You'd be surprised. Nowadays, there is a movement. Um, It's suddenly trendy to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. And turns out some investment banks are interested in selling um, certificates certificates of sustainability. And uh, they're interested in having clients who are sustainable? So, you know, if you want to be a client of an investment bank, you need to prove that you're sustainable. And why did you do that? Is by analyzing satellite imagery.
0: That's a great move. So that's actually happening. That's promising. Um, and and this came about with the whole sustainability movement and what UN's doing. Um, and it's uh, is that impacting Uh, so you guys are are the frontline people who are you know showing what's going on you're the the eyes of is that what you brought forward Um, as well as people in the field I've seen a lot of um, images as well
1: it's really because of the the NGOs that have raised awareness Mm -hmm. uh, that drove this sustainability movement right And now we're coming along, you know, the NGOs say, you know, we have this technical problem. Can you help us with this? And we say, yes, we can help you. But that's not where it stops. You know, uh, connecting it back to something I said at the very beginning is the third pillar of of humanitarian AI is once you develop this proof of concept, you want to show to the people with a deep cup pocket that this can be done. It's possible. As long as you fund it.
0: Absolutely. So... Is that something you're involved with? Like, what's been the um, impact there? Um, are you are you finding that things are shifting? I mean, you said the banks are are starting to um, reward businesses that are mm-hmm. sustainable. Um, it's all interconnected. So, the Definitely. humanitarian AI side. Do you want to speak a little bit more to um, what that needs? more help with um so funding would you say is something you could speak about in terms of helping um ngos get more funding what what's your advice what's something you would would you be able to share on that point
1: Uh, what i can say is what i've experienced which is um if you have a you know some basic organization at least in the way you gather the data then you're in a position to ask uh, analytical questions about the data. You know, like how much abuse is there or how much deforestation is there? Uh, am I in a position to just take all these different satellite images and do some uh, machine learning on it? Um, and we, this is what we bring to the table. Uh, we develop these proof concepts and then we can show to the world, to, to donors, uh, to philanthropists, that, you know, these this people, they have deep pockets and, you know, if they could... Solve, make it like eliminate poverty many times over around the world if they wanted to. But I think this, the the things that they really care about is the impact. Like if the, even if it eradicate poverty, that's not going to last, you know, then that, that, that's only treating the symptom. It's not really treating the, the, the more, the deeper uh, social issue that, that drives poverty. So if you can prove to um, the elite that uh, your solution can bring you closer, your AI solution can bring you closer to mitigating the situation in a a consistent and sustainable way, then they will fund you. And now we're seeing that by having commercial partners being interested in sustainability.
0: Excellent. So it's all about impact and I think um, that's fantastic. Well done. Um, So. Is there something that's been intriguing or exciting to your lab that you'd like to share that you haven't yet? It's all very intriguing and exciting, Freddie. But um, uh,
1: we're 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 only a small a small lab. Uh, but what I'm seeing is that uh, just you know even beyond the the company. I mean, the AI for good is part of the, the company's DNA, and that's we were that's why we were established here in London. But what I've seen is because of this momentum that we've created, um, employees across the whole company can now participate in these projects. And beyond that, you know, in the whole tech industry, we're seeing now a movement of crazy small people who want their code to be used for for good.
0: Yeah. What a great movement. Code for good. And is this going to the right places? Um, so are NGOs, um, are, they, are they finding each other? What would you say to um, that collaboration? What advice would you give them about collaborating, NGOs collaborating with tech companies and finding uh, each other? Uh, so it, it
1: really is about communication and networking. Uh, sometimes we are not even aware of each other's existence. Mm. And I think we need to start attending the same conferences to go to the networking events.
0: Um, yeah, and and this is like the the meetup here is is very much about exactly. getting the word out and um, bringing that community together and helping share all these um, needs. Is there is there a, a need for improvement or a request that you have that you'd like to share with us today?
1: I would say. Own the fact that you need to work on something different other than what your company wants you to work on, mm-hmm. and push for that.
0: How can you get help to, to push that agenda through?
1: For starters, you can start going to these events and collaborating with people, mm-hmm. uh, making a case in your company that in your company's best interest, and you know start like collecting interest, like uh, find people who want to work with you on this project. Uh, it really is uh, down to the consistent, dedicated effort. It can't just be like a 20% project. You need to put the time, the consistent time. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly is don't pretend that you can solve a problem just with technology. You need to find the domain experts. So talk to people out there who have been looking at these problems for decades. Talk to them again and again and again. Uh, is a very tight feedback loop.
0: Yeah. It, and what's your ask from the humanitarian AI meetup um, audience?
1: If you have... Encur- encourage um, the spirit of um, cross-discipline discussions. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the machine learning. It's also about the lessons that, you know, like journalists, um, that they can bring to the discussion.
0: hmm That's all really, really so fascinating. And well, thank you so much, Alfredo, for sharing your insights from Element AI. Uh, That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.